We're in Galatians 1. If you want to open up your Bible, that's where we're going to be. There was an old cigarette ad. Now then, some people are going to go, cigarette ad on Sunday morning church? It's an illustration, okay? So just like relax, all right? All right? There's an old cigarette ad. Some of you might know it because you might have partaken in those days, but I'm sure you never inhaled. And the cigarette, the slogan was this. Now, obviously, that is old. Us Territon smokers would rather fight than switch. What is the message that they're conveying about their product in that ad? Talk to me again. It's worthwhile, right. How much worthwhile? Huh? Worth fighting for, yeah. My cancer stick, I'll fight you for it. Exactly. That what they're saying is, is that I'm so, I'm so dedicated to my brand of cigarettes that I would fight before I'd switch. Exactly. That's exactly what they're saying. You know what? Well, I think the Apostle Paul was saying the same thing. I think the Apostle Paul was saying the same thing. I think he's saying, when it comes to my gospel, I'd rather fight than switch. And this week, in the, first, in the first chapter of Galatians, the dude comes out swinging. If you're in, you're in the Gospel of John, we're going to start. I'm reading from the New American Standard. We're going to read verses 1 through 12, all right? All right, now, John, John, that one there, Galatians. Thank you very much. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and the Father, God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not really another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For I am now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which is preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Here we go. Now, as we study the Bible together, I'm always trying to highlight good Bible study habits. And so, for instance, in paying attention to this text here, you know, we are, we are interested where the paragraph breaks are, because in any letter, an author has a different tone about, is, is saying, is changing their thought when they change their paragraph. And so in this particular letter, we have two places, in the New American Standard anyway, that has paragraph breaks. One at verse 6, where he goes from, this is Paul, I'm writing to you in Galatians, and then he goes in, right into, I'm amazed. That's the first paragraph break. The second one comes at verse 11, where he begins to say, for I would have you know, he begins to talk about his discipleship. He begins to talk about his apostleship. Right there, And the reason today, while I've included verses 11 and 12, 
is because I believe that they, they shed some light on the gospel message he's talking about in verses 6 through 10. So I don't think we're violating the intention of Paul by doing that. I think instead we're trying to just highlight where that gospel came from. So the point of it is this, is that he's talking about a gospel. He says that there's one gospel, and then he makes the point in verses 11 and 12. He says, this gospel is not from men. This gospel is from Christ, by revelation no less. So that's why we read a little bit further there. Now, you're going to notice that this letter might have a different greeting than many. We discussed this on Tuesday in our discussion group. And more often than not, he nearly always introduces himself as an apostle. And most of the time he's saying, by the will of God or called by God. First and Second Thessalonians is the, is, the, is the exception to that. And then in Philemon and Philippians, he calls himself a slave and a prisoner. And really, what we talked about in our Tuesday discussion group was that the distinction between the, the greeting was the audience. And in this particular letter, the audience is one that he's not really wanting to be very happy with. He's not happy with. Because in all the others, it goes, you know what? I thank God on every remembrance of you, he says. He says, um, when, uh, he says um, I pray for you always for these things. In this letter, he doesn't do that, does he? He says, this is from Paul. By the way, God sent me to you, Galatians. Now, this is my problem with you. And then he opens up the letter. I mean, you just imagine this. If you, opened up the, if you opened up the envelope on this letter, a hand would reach out and poke you in the eye immediately. That's what he's doing here. He's not affirming. He's not congratulating. He didn't have very much nice stuff to say until you get later in the letter. So the very first thing is, is this man is writing a letter that he's getting their attention on. And so what he's saying is, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by God, the will of God. He's, you know, no, he's not saying that. He immediately jumps to establishing authority in this. And so what he does is this. He, he says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ, God and, Father, God, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me. In essence, what he's saying here is this. He, you know, let's just paraphrase this for today. He's like going, I am Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ. God himself sent me to you. It wasn't a man. It wasn't a council of men. Men have no authority compared to God. The one who raised Jesus from the dead, the one who has enough power to defeat death, that God sent me to you. You better listen, is what he's saying. He's establishing authority right from the beginning. Notice that he speaks of himself as being sent. You know, matter of fact, the, the word apostle has this meaning, a sent one, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. And he says here, I'm an apostle, not sent from these people, but sent from that one. So they know what an apostle means. They know it means someone who's sent with orders, with a message. And he's saying, but who sent me is this one. It's God. And so there is this sense of like, intention here. There is this sense of purpose here. There is a sense of authority here. All of that. And the tone is this drawing a line in the sand. It's raising a flag about who he is and who he represents. I'm from God. Who sent you? 
I am from God. Where do those other guys come from? Matter of fact, it's kind of like, you know, if you're a poker player, that isn't this a great sermon today? Cigarettes and poker players. We're going to get to alcohol in a few minutes too, all right? <laughs> it's kind of like this. If you're a poker player, what he's doing is he's coming right out and he's saying the first deal of the hand was four aces. Oh, wait a minute. That, those four aces didn't work out that well for us that year. We lost a lot. Never mind. He was talking about four aces. Four aces. He goes, this hand can't be defeated. This hand can't be trumped. I've won already. This is the authority I'm coming out with. You can't trump my authority. No one else is bigger than my God. He moves into verse 6 and he says this, I am amazed you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You know, that word deserting has very much, you know, when, first of all, when, what does the word conjure up in your mind? Deserting. What does it conjure up in your mind? What's the, the meaning behind it? Talk to me. Leave. All right, what else? Disloyalty. All right, anything else? What did you say, Gary? I heard your voice. Leaving a battle. Yeah, well done. You know, it has very much the sense of like that I'm allegiant to one, I have an allegiance to one, but then I change my allegiance. It very much has this sense of a traitor. That's what he's saying. He's saying that you followed Jesus and now you're following someone else. Now, they, they, they didn't say they didn't believe in Jesus. Think about this. Track with it a little bit. They didn't say they didn't believe in Jesus. They said they believed in something different about Jesus. And this difference was so important that Paul says, you've deserted Jesus. You've deserted him. Paul is accusing them of changing their allegiance from a true gospel or from Jesus to a false gospel. In verse 7, he says that a different gospel is not a gospel at all. There can only be one true gospel. So let me just ask you something. I'm not giving this away. It's just an illustration as well, okay? This is $20. Look, it looks like this. It's not the same one, but it looks like that, all right? If this $20 is not real, it's a fake. It's counterfeit. Now, let's say that you're starving. I mean really starving. I mean like you haven't eaten in days and days. Like it's your last day standing on your feet starving. And I offer you this $20 to buy food. You want to make sure that this $20 is the real deal. That when you go up to the cash register and you push it across the table and they take out their little pen and they swap it, they say, thank you very much, sir, come back again. Matter of fact, you're looking a little thin, you know. No, you want to make sure that they don't say, I'm sorry, but this is not real. You can't have that food. Matter of fact, it looks like you need it too. Your life depends upon it. You want the real thing. Paul knows this. He knows that the gospel has got to be the real thing. And that's what he is bringing to their attention today. Another observation we can make about this in verse 6 is this. Notice that Paul says, go to verse 6, look at it with me. I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him. Pay attention. I am so amazed you're quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ 
for a different gospel. You see, he doesn't say that I'm, so, I'm surprised you're deserting him for a different God. He equates that gospel with Jesus. The two are intertwined. He says Jesus is the gospel. He says, and you're going to see that as he unpacks this, this, this passage here in the entire book, he's saying Jesus plus nothing is exactly the gospel, and Jesus plus anything at all, anything at all, did you hear me? I said anything at all is not the gospel. Matter of fact, it's not Jesus anymore. The two are intertwined. They are the same thing. And matter of fact, you know, look back at verse 4 with me. There he says, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil, this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. Paul has packed the true gospel into the first four verses. So let's just look at this. You remember two weeks ago, Scott Brubaker just beautifully unpacked the gospel. And here he referred to this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, 15, where he says here, For what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Now right there, just pay attention. If Paul says it's first importance, that means it's pretty important. And he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to the father, Peter and then to the twelve. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Well, look at what we have in the first four verses. Christ died for our sins, verse 4. According to the scriptures. In other words, right there he's saying, you know, this, our text is according to the according to the will of God. Well, the scriptures is God's will revealed. So we're talking about the same thing. So verse 4 also says, according to the scriptures. And then in verse 1, he, goes, he says, and he was buried and raised on the third day. It speaks of God the Father as raising him from the dead. So the gospel message is packed into the first four verses right there. And you notice in the gospel message, nowhere in the gospel message there does it say anything about you doing anything. Nowhere in the gospel message does it say anything about what we must do. The gospel message is all about what he has done. Scott told us a couple of weeks ago the most important words in the English language. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Now, why do I say that the gospel is Christ and Christ is the gospel? I believe that because it's in the death of Christ for the sake of the undeserving that so much of the character and the nature of God is revealed. And so if that's true, if the gospel is the nut, is the the essence of God and his character and his nature, and we were to ever say that the gospel plus something, what are we saying about God himself? Answer that question. Talk out loud. If we say it's God plus something, what are we saying about him? He's not enough. 
Can you understand now why Paul says to, to preach a different gospel is to be accursed? Is to say that God is not enough. Let's, <coughs> let's look at just a few examples of how God's nature is revealed in the gospel. very first one that we've talked about already is grace. It's grace. Paul has already mentioned this one explicitly. God's grace is showcased when Jesus paid the penalty for me. An undeserving, unrepentant, rebellious 12-year-old boy, I received the unmerited favor of God. That's his grace. I didn't do anything to deserve it. I couldn't do anything to deserve it. I got it anyway because he offered it. Mercy. God's mercy was displayed to me when Christ died for me instead of, instead of the punishment that I needed to pay. I deserved punishment. You deserve punishment. Mercy comes at the cross when we get forgiveness instead of punishment. When we get mercy. Justice. In giving mercy and grace, God did not toss aside justice. Instead, he showcased his justice. The penalty for sin was met in the death of the sinless Son of God, who paid that penalty and therefore satisfied the demand for justice. Do you get that? Justice. It was done in the cross. The epitome of it, right there. Because mankind owed a debt, owed a debt for their sin. It's just that someone pays for something done wrong. It's built into us. When we see the guilty go free, we just, it it just bothers us. Justice is built into us, and so we want to see the guilty punished. And so does God. He is the ultimate injustice. And it was paid for, and it was satisfied when Christ paid that penalty on mine and your behalf. Compassion. God saw the suffering of mankind as we wallowed in our sin and we struggled to deal with the consequences of it. The blindness of mankind, the darkness of our life. And in his compassion, he sent his son to give us freedom, to give us hope in our sorrow, to open our eyes to the enlightenment of eternity, to give us the light of the world, Christ himself. He had compassion on us. Omnipotence, a very large word that just means all-powerful. God demonstrated his unlimited, unstoppable power by demonstrating it by raising Jesus from the dead. No one, no God, no system, no philosophy, no politician, no political system can defeat death. Every man yields to it. But not God. And in that he demonstrates omnipotence, all power, unstoppable, unyielding to anyone or anything. In the resurrection of Christ, in that gospel message, his omnipotence is demonstrated. Love. Well, this one should be easy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so whoever may believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world. God so loved you, Kate. God so loved you, Sean. Hard to imagine. God so loved you, though. You know, it just, God loves us. God loves us. And in doing so, he loves us so much that he gave up his own most beloved because of you. That is great love. Showcased in the gospel. Faithful. 
In the shadow of created time, in the moment of man's rebellion, as God turned mankind over to the consequences of his sin, he promised a redeemer. At that moment, he says, this is going to hurt, but I'm promising, I'm promising relief. And in that moment, he says, he said in, in Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise, speaking of a redeemer, he shall bruise your head, he said to Satan, and he says, you shall bruise him on the heel. And he further confirms that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 18, when he says, your descendants, Abraham, will bless the entire world. And then later in Isaiah 53, the bruiser of the head of Satan, the descendant of Abraham, is described as the suffering Messiah. And that that promise in Genesis to redeem mankind was fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He is faithful to his promises. Incomprehensible. That's almost too big for me to say. Incomprehensible. In other words, we cannot comprehend him. We cannot understand him. We don't think like him. We discussed on Tuesday that what some of our problem with God is that we try and take something that is infinite and we take the only thing we know, which is humanity, and we try and describe him and understand him at human terms. And we can't. We fall short all the time. Incomprehensible. In the sense where Romans 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God. Not his wisdom. His stupidity. His foolishness. The, I mean, like, his simplest thoughts are more than we can understand. They go above our head. And the weakness of God is stronger, he says. Incomprehensible. Hard to understand. Hard to imagine. It doesn't fit in a systematic theology book. It doesn't fit in in me saying, that oh, you're a Calvinist and you're an Arminian. I, I don't like that stuff. I don't like those discussions. I don't like them. Because all you're trying to say is is that my God fits on this page. Where does your God fit? He doesn't fit on a page. He doesn't fit in a systematic theology book. It is your free choice and he is sovereign both at the same time. Don't ask me to explain it. Don't ask me to have a giant discussion to, to walk away and say, I understand it now. I don't. I don't. And that's just one little thing I don't understand. There's so much more incomprehensible. And so what is incomprehensible about the gospel? I'm not going to give up my son for any of you. But he did. But he did. Unthinkable. Unthinkable. I don't understand him. That is love. That is mercy. That is justice. That is grace. That is compassion. That is faithfulness that I don't know how to explain. But I see it in Jesus. I see it in the gospel. Paul is telling them, he's telling us, that there's nothing more important than to firmly grasp. Nothing more important to understand and to live out that one true gospel. 
The good news that man deserves punishment, that God paid the penalty for us in the death of Christ, that news right there is so important. The purity of that message that in any man and woman and child can understand. He says that if anyone, look at what he says in 8 and 9. He says, if we, if any of us, he's talking about the apostles, the founders of the church. He says, if we or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to this, he is accursed. And then he repeats it all over again in verse 9. He goes, if this happens, they are to be accursed. And then we're beginning to get a sense of what the man is going to upset about. Because what he's saying is that if you're teaching anything else, you're saying God is not enough. You're saying the death of his, his son is not enough. That's what you're teaching. That's what you're saying. And he says that message is so important. Back in my youth, one of my college jobs was working as a residential framing carpenter. I was one of the grunts, you know. And on that job, one of the first jobs you'd do on a new house was to set the forms for the foundation. And those forms had to be level. They had to, you know, they had to be right. It had to be precise because what, however that foundation was laid, it meant that's how the house was going to be built. And so if there was a flaw in that foundation, and years later it was become obvious in the cracks and the crevices that began to appear, it meant that the house structure was flawed, perhaps even dangerously so. And therein comes the saying, foundations are forever. What you build on, what you understand, are forever. They're lasting. Paul is telling them, the foundation that you're building your life on has to be Christ and Christ alone. That's the message. And if you build on anything else, if you do anything else, what you're doing is you're setting a foundation that eventually is going to begin to crumble, that is going to begin to teeter, that is going to cost you later. Because more often than not, what you have to do when that foundation begins to crack is that you're going to have to take down that house to get to the foundation to fix it. And then you start over again. Some of us are in need of starting over. That's some of us, that, that myself included, I'm one of those some. Our gospel foundations have flaws in them. And we need to tear down our thinking and our theology and our behavior down to the foundation to where what we have here is that our foundation is the gospel. It is that Christ plus nothing is everything. For us to fully understand the case Paul is bringing against the Galatians, we must understand what the gospel is because he's saying they have a false one. Scott really explained it great two weeks ago, and it boils down to this. It is all God. There's no room for man to participate in his own salvation. Ephesians 2 says no man can boast. He says that we are all saved and so that no man can boast by faith. 
Galatians goes further into this area as, as, and that as evangelicals, we miss the boat here and that we feel like it's okay to get saved by faith, but we're going to live by works. And he is unpacking this to help us to understand that we don't live by works either. We live by faith as well. That's where he's going with this. And so what you believe about the gospel, what you believe about what it takes to be saved and what it takes to live your life out daily, what you believe about that is of utmost importance. I've had people say, you know what, I kind of got the gospel. Let's, Let's talk about something else. I don't know. It's the gospel. It's kind of important. I mean, if you're ever moving from here and you're going to like Sheboygan or someplace else and you're looking for a church, find out what they believe about the gospel. And make that what decides it for you. If you're here today as a guest and you want to know if this is a good place for you another, ask me what we believe about the gospel. And that'll tell you whether you should stay or not. When someone says to you they're a Christian, somehow or another get to the place where you say, what do you believe about the gospel? What does it take to be saved? How do you live your life every day? And that'll tell you where they are. One day, or on the day, in 1865, that President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, Congress had approved and forwarded a new, the legislation for a new agency. It was sitting on his desk the day that he was killed. Anyone know what that agency was? Trivia here? Secret Service. Yeah. Secret Service. Now, immediately we think, oh, isn't that ironic that the agency that was created to protect the, agent, the president was sitting on his desk? But that's not the case. The agency was not tasked to, predict, to protect the president until 1901 after President McKinley's assassination. The agency was created to help stem the flow of counterfeit currency. At the end of the Civil War, one-third of every piece of currency out there was false. And the Secret Service was created to help enforce real dollars, real currency. Paul was the Secret Service of his day and time. Only he was not on the lookout for false money. He was on the lookout for false gospels. And this is why he would rather fight than switch. Or why he would rather fight and, let his, and, and keep his followers on task. As we go through this study in Galatians, we are going to continue to understand what was false about the gospel of their day and time. And if you're reading ahead and stuff, you're going to say to me, we don't observe holidays, Smith. You're going to say to me that we don't... Um, uh, We don't um, monitor circumcision, Smith. You're going to say that that stuff doesn't really apply to me. And the answer is this, is that those additions to the gospel don't, but we have our own that do. In the course of our time together, I'm hoping that we unearth our additions to the gospel. I hope that we unearth how we are living by works instead of by faith alone. And that we, at the end of this study, 
are a different group of believers. That we, at the end of the study, are living our lives, we've begun to understand how to live our lives a little bit differently. And that we're no longer trying to win merit. We're no longer trying to gain his favor, but we understand that we already have it. And in having it, we extend it to others much more generously, much more freely than we've ever done before. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, we acknowledge you. In this message that is so simple that so many stumble over it and say it can't be true, in the message that the Son of God came and died for the sins of ungrateful, rebellious men, women, and children, that message, the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God, that we don't comprehend, we embrace. Lord, may it sink deep into our hearts And may we begin to understand what it means to live in the unmerited favor of God. And that how we were saved by grace, that we now live by grace. Lord, I pray that you would begin, that you would put out our, our antennas, that we would begin to say, you know what, am I living by grace in this moment, or am I trying to earn something? Begin to reveal that to us, Lord, so that we may unearth those things and cast them aside and instead replace grace, unearned, unfavored merit there instead. Work in us, Lord. Reveal it to us. Keep this on the top of our minds. Have us talking about it, praying about it, reading about it, so that we can be a changed people. And in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, everyone. So nice to have you here today with us. And uh, class starts in a few minutes in East Wing Hall. CEF people right over here. And uh, ballots are outside at the desk.